The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. The field of candidates running for the Republican nomination just got bigger with Mike Pence, Chris Christie, and Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota. All making their campaigns official now. Pence and Burgum out with slick produced ads. We're going to dig into them a little bit later on this hour. And Chris Christie, of course, the former governor of New Jersey and former ally of Donald Trump, choosing to make his announcement in a town hall in Manchester. So I'll say to you tonight that I can't guarantee you success in what I'm about to do. But I guarantee you that at the end of it, you will have no doubt in your mind who I am and what I stand for and whether I deserve it. So that's why I came back to St. Anselm's and that's why I came back to Manchester and that's why I came back to New Hampshire to tell all of you that I intend to seek the Republican nomination for President of the United States in 2024 and I want your support. All right. Now he spent some time taking questions And this was, you know, you've heard him referred to as the kamikaze candidate because he's seen as the one candidate who can bring it to Trump on a debate stage, punch him in the nose rhetorically. And he came packing. It was a mistake in 2016 not to confront Donald Trump early because I knew that so much of what he said was complete baloney. Like I knew it. I'm going to build the greatest, most wonderful wall across the entire Mexico border, and Mexico is going to pay for it. Well, like, I knew, as someone who had governed, that that was complete bull. But I was like, eh, people aren't going to believe that. They're not going to believe that. Mistake. But guess what? You've got no excuse now. He was there for four years, two of them were the Republican Congress. He got a quarter of the wall built, and Mexico hasn't given us our first peso. We paid for all of it. So there's a little bit of a preview of what that first debate might sound like. He spent time. He was up there for quite a bit. He blamed Donald Trump for problems at the border. Here's Chris Christie again. When you watch illegal immigration pouring over our southern border, don't wonder whose fault it is. It's his. It's his fault because he never changed one immigration law. In the two years that he had Republican control of the Congress, not one immigration law did he change. He didn't build the wall like he told us to. And Mexico is laughing at us at the idea that they were going to pay for a wall on their border. Okay, think about how that's going to resonate in MAGA world. The border is such a sensitive issue, certainly on the Republican side of the aisle and certainly for Donald Trump. Think of all the photo ops in front of the wall. Now, we go further here. Following this debt ceiling debate and all the back and forth about debt, Chris Christie pointed to Donald Trump as one of the major causes. The reason this is going to be different this time, sir, is because at least one of us is going to call him on the fact that eight years ago he stood on the stage in New Hampshire and said he was going to balance the budget in four years. 
And he left with the biggest deficit of any president in American history. He said he was going to eliminate the national debt in eight years. He added $3 trillion to the national debt in four years. All right, there's your next leg in the argument here. As he's talking to a fairly attentive crowd, relatively small room, St. Anselm College in Manchester. Then we get to the big stuff, the grift. The grift from this family is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Kushner walk out of the White House and months later get $2 billion from the Saudis. $2 billion from the Saudis. You think it's because he's some kind of investing genius? Or do you think it's because he was sitting next to the President of the United States for four years doing favors for the Saudis? That's your money. That's your money he stole and gave it to his family. You know what that makes us? A banana republic. A banana republic. You wonder how much time he spent working on all of this. This is why I want to talk to our panel in a moment. Never mind Andrew Smith. And so then we fast forward to the ads. I, I still haven't seen one from Chris Christie here, but some very slick, clearly well-produced ads put together here by Mike Pence and the governor of North Dakota. We'll start with the former vice president. Think city on a hill. The land of opportunity. Beacon of democracy. The shining city on a hill. Ah, he said it. Land of the free, home of the brave. That's right. The United States of America. So this is the optimistic this part of the ad. It's about it runs about two and a half minutes long. Irish here. immigrant. There you Those go. aren't just words. A little bit of biographical My info. Live the American dream. The American dream. And then the big butt. But today, our country's in a lot of trouble. We turn to a Joe minor Biden key. And the radical left have weakened America at home and abroad. Now images of Joe Biden, the Kamala Harris. Being crushed under runaway inflation. Images Wages of are dropping. The stock Recession market in the border. Our southern border is under siege, and the enemies of freedom are on the march. Now, a very different uh, candidate in Doug Bergen, but a very similar approach here when it comes to the ads. Saw a headline somewhere earlier, turned to Hollywood for the ad. I think it was USA Today. It's very well done. Another city on a hill. My dad died when I was 14. Interesting choice. Freshman year of high school. First line. They pulled me off our basketball team bus and told me the news. Looks like a trailer for Dances with Wolves at this point here. North Dakota. I grew up in a tiny town in North Dakota. Woke was what you did at 5 a.m. to start the day. Hey, there you go. That's not a bad line. And maybe he should not be underestimated, even if he is starting with very low name recognition. Also now officially running for president, former entrepreneur, and has enough money that he could self-fund the campaign if he needs to. I'm told Andy Smith is ready, the director of the University of New Hampshire Survey Center. Uh, Andrew, it's great to have you back on Bloomberg. Can you hear me? I sure can, Joe. How are Fantastic. you? Fantastic. I'm doing better now. It's good to hear your voice. I've been looking forward to this because I'm talking about candidates and town halls and advertising and polling numbers and i wonder how many people in new hampshire have even started paying attention well they're probably trying to avoid politics right now more than being attracted to it 
yes, it's true. New Hampshire has high turnout in the presidential primary historically. Yes, you have a greater opportunity to meet a candidate here than in any place in the country. But only about 15 to 20 percent of voters will even say that they've been in a room with a candidate in the past. So for the most part, most people aren't paying a lot of attention to this race. Don't mm-hmm. pay attention to it next, late next fall when it actually matters. Okay. Well, of course, you know, we're all paying attention here, and we love talking about this as we try to get a sense of where we might be a couple of months from now. And either the, the, the candidates have spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. We, we spent quite a bit of time in Iowa last week. Chris Christie decides to announce in New Hampshire because I'm assuming he sees that as his best first shot. What do folks in the Granite State think of him? Uh, they don't think a lot of him. When we asked uh, last time, we asked about uh, people uh, who they wanted to vote for for the New Hampshire primary. Christie was at two percent, so he was just not that well known compared to most other candidates. I think that's his biggest problem. He also has fairly high negatives among the uh, uh, the MAGA group of, of voters up here, and I think that's one of the things that is going to be both his signature of strength. Uh, and his weakness, his strength is it because it bolsters his willingness to talk out against Trump because mm-hmm. he figures he's already lost those voters and it gives him some bonus mm-hmm. days for getting the anti-Trump vote. He talked about this idea of being a kamikaze candidate. He said, how do you have one without the other? I'm going after the guy who's leading in the polls here. And Donald Trump's poll numbers are very convincing in New Hampshire. I mean, in some cases, they, they look unbelievable leading Ron DeSantis uh, by 20, 30, 40 points, depending on the poll. Do you believe numbers like that this early on? Um, I think that they're probably accurate to, uh, accurate measures of name recognition and how much can, um, media visibility somebody's gotten. But they're certainly not predictive of what's going to happen in November. I guess the best example of that in recent years was in 2015 at about this time, uh, Bernie Sanders was at 10 to 15 percent of the polls in New Hampshire, and he ended up winning that race with more than 60 percent of the vote. So there's a lot that can happen between now and election. So they're not necessarily predictive. How important is it that your governor, Chris Sununu, has made clear that he's not going to run? He says he'll actively campaign against Donald Trump. Uh, Will he make an endorsement? What what is that going to look like? Um, I'm pretty sure he will make an endorsement. There's a history of... uh, uh, governors in New Hampshire backing candidates um, and using that for maybe their own political uh, advancement. But uh, uh, you think of John Sununu, uh, his father yeah. certainly uh, got that endorsement and helped uh, George H.W. Bush back in 1988. And that got him the position of uh, uh, chief of staff down in D.C. So we'll be hearing uh, certainly more from him. I, I wonder Absolutely. if he becomes, you know, sort of a Sherpa for Republican candidates or if he decides to just coalesce around one. Maybe his name is Chris Christie to go for Donald Trump directly. It's kind of a coincidence. And, and one person drops out and another person declares in about a day mm-hmm. and a half. Give us a geography lesson here, uh, Andy Smith. When people think about New Hampshire, uh, they think about Manchester they think about uh, center-right-leaning electorate, but it's a real patchwork. What areas should be we should we be looking in from the Boston suburbs going up to Manchester and then into farm country uh, with regard to to political preference and and where mm-hmm. these candidates are going to spend their time? Well, I, first, it's important to remember that about two thirds of the population in New Hampshire is in a triangle from say Nashua up to Concord and over to Portsmouth. And the rest of the state is largely uninhabited. And I don't mean that as offense to the other people. That's the rural <laughs> no, part of, of the state. And then in this rural part of the state, 
it varies dramatically where you live about where the political preference is. It's important to, to state out that the kind of the old FDR coalition that we think of, that the Democratic Party is blue-collar workers and so forth, that's not the case here. The Democratic Party is the educational elite, the social and economic elite in the state. The Republicans tend to be much more blue-collar. Um, and consequently, the places that are the most Democratic in the state are the state capital, Concord, mm-hmm. uh, and then around the, in the university towns, like here on the seacoast in New Hampshire, very high educated, a lot of money. It's a heavily Democratic region. And the same is true out around uh, Hanover, where um, Dartmouth College is. But the, the rest of the state is uh, more um, conservative Republican in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. That's uh, kind of Donald Trump territory. Yeah. And then there's some kind of old fashioned uh, moderate Democrats in the Manchester area. So if you're buying ads like the ones we were just hearing, you're, you're buying Manchester and Boston. Is that right? I, I think that's probably uh, Manchester right now would be much better. Certainly mm-hmm. well bang for the buck that you would get there. I would imagine they're still doing a lot of targeted advertising if they're going to do anything, both on the Internet as well as on TV right now, because, frankly, again, most voters aren't paying attention. Uh, The only real reason I could see to spend a lot of money on advertising right now is to get your name recognition over that 1% threshold which the uh, RNC is requiring for the first debate. Boy, you know, I'm kind of excited to get back up there. You're not our candidates aren't already, you know, walking around going to the, the Red Arrow Diner and so forth, are they? That comes months later. Oh yeah, they've they've already been to the Red. They Diner. are. Be Why wait? Store. Absolutely. <laughs> Get your photo op. Yeah, well, listen, I'm looking forward to, to getting up there, and I, I, I want to spend some time with you when we do, uh, Andrew Smith. Many thanks for giving us a, a primer here. With three more names on the list, the director of the University of New Hampshire Survey Center. He's one of the good ones. Andrew Smith with us here helping us get prepared for the, what can I can I call it that? At least for the Republicans, the first in the nation primary. You can't call it that for the Democrats, though. That gets far more complicated. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On. There we go with some music. Coming up next, we assemble our panel, Lisa Camuso-Miller and Jim Kessler with us as we dig through what we heard last night from Chris Christie, these ads today from Pence and Burgum, and who else might be about to jump in. That's next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The former vice president is just about to hit the podium to make his announcement. You can't just do the video, right? I thought that was actually the world we were in here. Uh, Just a day after Chris Christie made it official in New Hampshire, the former vice president announcing his campaign for the nomination at a rally in Iowa. As we prepare to assemble our panel, this is a good one here. We have Lisa Camuso Miller with us and Jim Kessler. And who says that Chris Christie is a kamikaze candidate? You know, I love this. I've seen some of the press coverage of me getting ready to run. And there's this thing like Christie doesn't really care about winning 
All he cares about doing is destroying Trump. Now let me ask you something. How are those two things mutually exclusive? Well. I mean, seriously. Well. Aren't they inextricably connected? The guy's ahead in the polls. Who am I supposed to be worried about, Nikki Haley? Oh, see, I bet she didn't love that. Lisa Camuso Miller, the former RNC communications director and partner at Reset Public Affairs, spent some time in New Jersey politics, knows some Chris Christie, and is with us now, along with Jim Kessler, the co-founder of Third Way, Democratic strategist. Lisa, how did he do last night? Uh, I think he did a good job. I mean, I think, Joe, what's interesting to me about the governor is that you know, look, he's the first candidate that is willing to go straight on with Donald Trump. He is not afraid of the consequences, and he is definitely not a kamikaze candidate. He is no, nobody runs for president without a plan to win. So he's gone into this absolutely ready for a fight. And let's hope this is death by a thousand cuts. Look, the Republican Party overall, over and over again, everybody is saying that they really want uh, to have another alternative. And so maybe Chris Christie opens the door for a lot of good candidates to get an opportunity to maybe showcase themselves and be at, at more at a, at a competitive pace than have been in the past with Donald should, Trump. Should people be paying more attention to the Chris Christie's and Mike Pence's of the world here? I won't I won't add Governor Burgum to this list right now, Jim, but the, the candidates who are in the single digits. And I ask you that knowing that if we spin back to 2016 at this time, or I guess 2015 would be the case, I believe Scott Walker was leading the polls. You know, the, Donald Trump was in last place. How are you looking at this field? Well, I, I think there's two questions there, um, because one is I don't think Mike Pence and Chris Christie are the same single digit candidates. And if you look okay. at their announcement, the Mike Pence announcement sounded like a politician from the announcing in the 1990s. You know, it just it really was a throwback to the type of race that that's not how campaigns are won these days. Chris Christie looked like he was really brawling for 2024. The, the thing is, is that in New Hampshire, surprises happen and it's a state that can launch a candidacy. I mean, the, <clears throat> your previous guest talked about how you know Bernie Sanders' candidacy in some ways was launched in 2016 by winning in New Hampshire. Now, of course, he's yeah. from the neighboring state. Right. But, but, but that's happened before here. And the important thing if for Republicans who desperately do not want Donald Trump to be the nominee is when New Hampshire is over, there needs to be one candidate in the field against him. Not four or not six. Wow. Is that possible, Lisa? This stage is getting crowded. The stage is getting crowded. The sound from a lot of the candidates is similar. The inability to go up against Donald Trump without being worried about what the impact would be is similar. The difference, as I said to you, as we've talked over the over the course of time, Joe, is that Chris Christie opening the door to pointing the finger at the facts to me allows for Republicans to feel good about making a choice for someone other than Donald Trump, someone that is a conservative candidate, someone that can govern. It's proven he's governed now 
two terms in uh, New Jersey in the state. Um, and typically, as you know, in history, governors are those that are elected to the White House. Um, we've only in the last uh, you know 12 years had two candidates that came from elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I do think that if uh, there's not a place for all nine of these candidates on the debate stage, it makes it increasingly difficult for them to compete and to be a candidate beyond New Hampshire. And so to Jim's point, I think that that's very true. If the Republicans in tend to win in 24, there will have to be a strong elimination process in order to get down to a few good candidates Mm -hmm. to get the the right nominee in place. Jim, I asked uh, Andy Smith at the beginning of the hour about this decision by Governor Sununu to not run. Is that the most important ally, the the most important endorsement you can seek right now? If you're Chris Christie, don't you want to hit the state with Chris Sununu on the bus with you? Absolutely. I think Sununu is going to wait um but his not running really matters it it opens up new hampshire he has the with maybe not the the same brawler a tone that you hear from a new jersey politician he has the same feeling towards towards donald trump i i do want to say though like whittling down the field really matters if you look at uh 2016 donald trump John Kasich, Ted Cruz, and Marco Rubio were competing for votes and delegates through 30 states. And Donald Trump barely won 40% of the votes, but because of the way the delegate allocation process works in the Republican Party, which is different than how it works in the Democratic Party, that 40 plus percentage of the votes got nearly 65% of the total delegates. Mm -hmm. A crowded field helps Donald Trump immensely. Yeah, it sure seems like it. This is why we maybe, I, I suppose, could see some deal making ahead of uh, South Carolina, Lisa. But I, I'd love your take on the other two jumping in here. Mike Pence, by the way, is speaking right now in Iowa, making Both his candidacy official. This is live sound from the podium. Political parties. It was introduced a short During time ago years, by his wife. It looks like a modest uh, but attentive crowd here. Uh, is he going to make a dent? Lisa, he put up a beautifully produced video this morning. He's taking a very traditional route to the evening, mentions the city on the hill. I find it so difficult to figure out how it is that he can thread the needle and pick up that 30 percent that is is unapologetically loyal to Donald Trump at a time when on January 6th, that same crowd of people were going for his head. I, I I would love to think he was a good member of Congress. He was a good governor. Um, he was dealt with a, a series of issues that caused him to have an unpopular rating when he left his state as governor to then become vice president. It, to me, um, it will be interesting to see, but he is a communicator at heart. I mean, he is very good, very good speaker, very good at figuring out uh, messaging. And so it'll be interesting to see how he cuts through the noise. Um, But I'm having a hard time figuring out his path because it feels a little less bombastic and combative and really challenging to the front runner at this point. Maybe not a candidate for 2024, Jim. I don't know your thought on that, but it is ironic that of, of the number of times that Chris Christie said Donald Trump's name last night, and that was the point, right, to punch him on the nose rhetorically. Mike Pence doesn't even mention the fact that he served with Donald Trump in this ad. Yeah, which gets to Lisa's point. Like, what's his theory of the case about how you're going to win this race? And is it is it some passive-aggressive, by served as vice president for four years, and I'm not even going to mention his name. Like, I 
I just don't see how that works. It's sort of a throwback candidacy. It's like a candidacy from a different era when Republicans would pick the next person in line almost huh. every time. And that's not the Republican Party today. Hey, Lisa, Doug Burgum, he put a slick ad together here. I mentioned earlier, it looks like Kevin Costner out there on the plains and dances with wolves. Makes me want to move to North Dakota. But can he make a dent? How, how does he introduce himself to the nation? Well, it's so interesting. And your your first guest was the one that really said it first. This That looks like a slick ad that was done by Hollywood, but that also was for another time, or perhaps it was Jim that said that, candidate in 16 and perhaps not a candidate for today. Mm. Uh, you know, look, Joe, we've watched candidates like this come from nowhere and really become very popular. Uh, it strikes me that it is a very slick ad. I, I love the fact that you said that his woke line I thought was really strong. It's what we do when we wake up early <laughs> right. in the morning. Um, but right, right now, it just feels like a very crowded field in a field where unless you're really uh, making a lot of noise, yeah. uh, it will be difficult to break through. Just 30 seconds, Jim. Does the money make a difference in his case? I mean, it, it, it doesn't hurt. But, you know, I, I worked on a candidacy that went from an asterisk in the polls to winning New Hampshire. That was Gary Hart in 1984. Hmm. It takes kind of a special moment. I'm not sure he has the moment or the personality great insights here honest talk with lisa camuso miller and jim kessler we're going to dig into this whole pga live fiasco congress is speaking up now and not everybody's happy in conversations we had with lawmakers on capitol hill today you're listening to the bloomberg sound on podcast catch us live weekdays at 1 eastern on bloomberg.com the iHeartRadio radio app and the bloomberg business app or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts now, the headline on the terminal says it all. PGA golf merger is Saudi Arabia's biggest soft power win yet. Great story uh, by Matthew Martin, who writes this shock merger of the PGA Tour and Live Golf means Saudi Arabia's strategy of using vast oil riches to boost its soft power by investing billions in global sports can claim its biggest victory to date. Yeah, shock and awe over this headline yesterday, and not everybody liked it. Bloomberg News went up to Capitol Hill today, scouring the corridors of the U.S. Senate to get a little bit of feedback here from lawmakers, some of whom see this as an antitrust issue. Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat from Washington. Right, right now, I'm saying on its face, this looks like hypocrisy driven by a major cash grab. We're going to get to the bottom of it. Should have said Oregon, of course, and a powerful figure in the Democratic leadership. We also caught up with Chris Murphy of Connecticut, even more animated about this. I think it's a really serious thing to have a foreign dictatorship in charge of a major U.S. sports league. This is a watershed moment, and I think we need to treat it as such. Listen, let's be honest. The Saudis aren't buying the PGA because they love golf. They're buying the PGA well, because they want to erase their dizzying campaign of political repression. And it's disappointing. Well, to that end, actually, the story gets into two reasons. Two reasons Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is pursuing this. There's a lot of money involved here. At home, the goal is to improve lifestyles, give some entertainment for the young people who struggled under the restrictions 
of previous regimes. Abroad, that's where the soft power comes in. Out to change the kingdom's reputation, which, of course, has been pretty awful. The war in Yemen, Jamal Khashoggi, the OPEC stuff. But what about the antitrust angle? Senator Dick Blumenthal of Connecticut. There's an ongoing Department of Justice investigation. I would intensify and focus it not only on the antitrust issues, but also on the potential foreign registration questions. You do wonder if Congress will even remember this in two days. Let's reassemble the panel for their take on it. It's a cultural issue. It's a political one. And it's definitely a financial one. Lisa Camuso-Miller is with us. Republican strategist along with Democratic strategist Jim Kessler. Uh, What's your thought here Jim, we just heard largely from Democrats. We actually caught up with Josh Hawley as well, who gave it a bit of a ho-hum. Does this end up being a partisan issue in Washington, and does anything change? I think it's possible this could be a partisan issue. And I look, the subtext on this is that this fight between Liv and the PGA Tour, you know, at, has divided the golf world. And, and for the first time, golf has really been involved in in a political debate, which is not normal for that sport. It has avoided it studiously throughout its, I don't know, 100-year career um, there. So, look, the thing about the antitrust fight is the legal system is going to sort this out. There's a political side to it as well, and I expect that you're going to hear particularly Democrats talking about antitrust in this instance, in part because Democrats look at antitrust as a solution to a lot of issues that they have differences with businesses here. So in this way, PGA and Live, it's not unique. There's a lot we could talk about here, Lisa, but the idea of projecting soft power uh, through uh, while it's global, something that people see as, you know, a largely American pastime, the PGA, even President Biden last night said he was going to join the PGA. Uh, there's a lot here, and it makes me wonder, you know, your thoughts on Saudi Arabia as the pariah of the world, as the aforementioned Joe Biden once called them. Yeah, I mean, you know, Joe, this is this is sports wild. I mean, this is what we're seeing, and it's happening not just with the Saudis. I mean, you saw it with the World Cup and Qatar hosting that. I mean, there's a lot of movement in these countries that are trying to uh, clear their name and and put themselves at a at a position where they are um, better regarded in the globe. I think this is very difficult for for them to do, but certainly having as much money as they've had. Uh, and as much money as they've, if they've offered up into this agreement, I mean, that to me alone is is very dangerous. The discussion about antitrust, though, Joe, I mean, that to me, I don't think it has a lot of teeth. I mean, I, you and I both have teenagers and we both know that, uh, you know, Taylor Swift and the access to tickets alone in the Ticketmaster scandal was just one we were talking about three weeks ago. And now there's nothing on that as well. And we talked before that about about TikTok. And I just don't think Congress has the teeth to cut into something like this in a way that they'd like to. So, yeah, I think it will be uh, something that's decided in the courts, whether or not they take it up is going to be the next question. But this alone is one that I think is is it's very much in the face of the people that stood by and stood loyal and and didn't go to live. The ones who stayed behind with the PGA, who said that it was wrong to, to go and do business with the Saudis. It's those that really are, I think, the ones who probably are feeling it the most on this day. Yeah, I'll tell you something. I mean, there's a lot here. Remember, even the victims, families of the 9-11 victims got involved in this when the PGA responded Mm -hmm. with a very expensive lawsuit 
uh, threatened to see the boss here subpoenaed in a U.S. court, the boss of uh, PIF, the public investment fund that comes up with this money. Did you call it sports whitewashing, Lisa? Did I hear you right? Sports washing, yeah. Sports washing. So Mm -hmm. they actually at one point went after or considered going after F1. Uh, Jim, what sport is next? Well, people are talking about possibly tennis because it has in some ways some of the same structure as the PGA Tour. But look, I think we have to remember that the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia is a very complicated relationship. And we lean on Saudi Arabia on a whole series of things and we separate on a whole series of things. And if you look at sort of the shape of the world today compared to where it was 10 years ago, well, we have a very different view of Russia than we did 10 years ago. We have a different view of Ukraine than 10 years ago. And we have a different view of China than we did 10 years ago. So we are now seeing a reordering of alliances and, uh, and enemies. And there's a whole bunch of nations that fall into that in-between gray zone. And this Saudi Arabia is one of them. And, and this is going to be complicated. To get a Republican voice on this, by the way, we did catch up with Senator Josh Hawley. I don't know what the antitrust ramifications would be, so I'd, I'd want to look at that. Yeah, I don't have concerns otherwise, but um, I'm not a huge follower of golf, I will say. But, not a big uh, golfer. Um, I've never been any. I've never been any good at it. Um, but anyway, I, I'll look at the antitrust. It's a nice point on antitrust, so I, I would I would think about that. Remarkably yeah. different reactions from both sides of the aisle, at least in our experience today on the Hill. Some final thoughts ahead with our great panel, Lisa and Jim with us here on The Fastest Show in Politics. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We heard earlier this hour from Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut on his antitrust concerns over the marriage of PGA and Live Golf. We just talked about this with the panel. The former attorney general of Connecticut is no stranger to antitrust issues. He actually helped to work the government's case against Microsoft over 20 years ago. In fact, it was this very day, way back in the year 2000. But the Justice Department briefed reporters on this ruling by then U.S. District Judge Thomas Pinfield Jackson. Remember that name? The ruling to break Microsoft in two. And on that stage was Richard Blumenthal. Microsoft is a monopoly. It's misused that monopoly. It's harmed consumers. Corrective action must be taken. And it ought to rely on the free market, not on the continual policing or interference of a defendant that lacks credibility and is likely to repeat that misconduct. Man, that was a big story in Washington. If you can remember then, maybe you live through it. Fast forward to today. The FTC is suing, yes, Microsoft over its acquisition of Activision. Final thoughts from our panel here. Jim Kessler, what do do we learn here? What does this teach us if we're still having the same conversation about the same company 23 years later? Well, Microsoft seems to be doing awfully well. So, I mean, I expect that they will, um, you know, and I know that there there have been divided rulings in Europe. I can't predict what's going to happen in this case, but I'm sure Microsoft will come out doing well. This administration, Lisa, has been accused of just going over the top uh, when it comes to antitrust. Do you see it that way? 
Well, you know, I do think that there is a lot to be uncovered there. What, what's difficult, though, is that when Washington tries to do this now, 20 years ago, Washington worked a lot different, Joe. And now if you think yeah. about it, 23 years later, there are so many conversations about antitrust that go almost nowhere, it feels as if, whereas back then that was a huge landmark decision. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, but I do think that there is a lot to be questioned. And it is good not only on the Republican, but also on the Democrat side to ask these questions in a way to make sure the competition is is still in place and that the market is dictating it. Great conversation, as always, with a great panel. Lisa Camuso-Miller, former RNC Communications Director, now at Reset Public Affairs, and our friend Jim Kessler, the co-founder of Third Way. Thanks for the time as ever. Kaylee Lyons on the way in next. Hour two of Sound On starts now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, along with Kaylee Lines, fresh off Capitol Hill, with a great headline, Kaylee, from Libby Cantrill. In her note to investors, the kidney stone has passed. <laughs> I had been waiting for it. Yeah, we had to bring this full circle. (laughs) She says it passed without that much pain. I'm not sure if you ask everyone, they'd give you that same answer. Chip Roy might still be smart in a little bit. Yeah. But we're, of course, talking about the debt ceiling. And we had some great conversations with Libby uh, along the way here, the managing director, head of public policy at PIMCO, uh, who did liken it to the passing of a kidney stone. And the question is, what happens now? And Libby is uh, helping us go there because we're already on 2024. That was sort of the immediate pivot for the newsroom at large here, I'd say, in Washington. Chris Christie with the town hall last night. Mike Pence announcing in Iowa this afternoon. Doug Burgum, by God, (laughs) announcing as well. Don't forget that one, Joe. Yeah. I mean, have you seen all the commercials? Yes. Because this is, you know, where we're going here. And everyone, I guess, wants to be Ronald Reagan. Mike Pence. The land of opportunity. Doug Burgum. Beacon of democracy feels so good already. Waking up to it. The sun is rising. My dad died when I was 14. Strange choice of first line. But now now the question is, can anybody make a dent? Uh, Chris Christie doing it his own way uh, with his town hall last night, where he repeatedly attacked Donald Trump over everything, including uh, the nation's debt. Did you hear this? The reason this is going to be different this time, sir, is because at least one of us is going to call him on the fact that eight years ago, he stood on the stage in New Hampshire and said he was going to balance the budget in four years. And he left with the biggest deficit of any president in American history. That was one of the nicest things he said about him last night. Yeah, he, he definitely didn't mince words, Joe. And it kind of speaks to this whole idea of the kamikaze candidate. Like he's mm-hmm. just in this thing to knock uh, Donald Trump down as many pegs as he possibly yeah. can. He did, though, push back against that idea last night. He did. Let's hear how he put it. You know, I love this. I've seen some of the press coverage of me getting ready to run. And there's this thing like Christie doesn't really care about winning. All he cares about doing is destroying Trump. Now, let me ask you something. How are those two things mutually exclusive? (laughs) 
I mean, seriously. So he's going for the win. He says the only lane is through Trump. And there's probably something to that. Although Libby's adding a couple of more names here, you know. Well, at least one more who hasn't filed yet. Can we bring Libby in? Libby Cantrell from PIMCO. Uh, welcome back, Libby. It's great to have you. Is the governor Hi, of Virginia jumping in here, too? Yeah. Hi, how are you? I, I, can't, I just want to you know, first start out by saying how much I appreciate the fact that you continue my uh, <laughs> stone analogy. So, we had to see it through. I know we really, we really did, um, and it was very apt. And I, I would, you know, I do, I do stand by the fact that it passed without, without too much pain, a lot of hysteria, but not, but not actually too much fundamental pain, and, and certainly not pain to, yeah. to the economy or to, or to the equity market. Fair enough. Um, yeah, yeah. So Glenn Youngkin, I mean, yeah, it is, as you know, Joe, he's been pretty coy. Um, he uh, sort of originally, uh, you know, has said that he's not going to run but then most recently has indicated that you know maybe maybe he will jump in the race i think i think that you know and 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 we'll be eager to hear your analysis but i think our view here is that um this is really looking could look a lot like 2016 in that you have a plur uh, a, a very crowded field you know already a dozen folks who have declared their candidacy and probably a few more uh, by the time that this is sort of all said and done. And then you have President Trump still getting sort of a plurality of support among the Republican Party, not really a majority, if, you know, according to according to recent polls, but still a plurality. And not to get kind of into the nuances very quickly here, but in terms of the structure of the Republican primary, that matters, right? A crowded field with President Trump getting a plurality of the vote means that he likely, you know, could be the nominee just because of that winner-take-all dynamic that we've talked about. If you're winning kind of the most votes, even if you're not winning the majority of votes in many of these Republican states, you get all of the delegates. This kind of winner-take-all dynamic, and so your, you know, his his runway, if you will, to sort of the nomination um, becomes, I think, a lot a lot smoother. So I mean, again, we're what we're telling clients it's very early days, but it does feel like at least as of now. And it definitely has echoes of, of 2016. I mean, it is early days, Libby, but it's not that early. I mean, two months from now, we're going to be gearing up for the first Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee, which Donald Trump may not attend, it seems. But isn't the <laughs> clock kind of yeah. running out here for anyone else who wants to get in, Governor Yunkin or someone else? Yeah. So, I mean, that that's, you know, that that's right. So, and we've, uh, we're trying to sort of, you know, direct our clients to these, you know, guideposts. So August 23rd, is going to be the first Republican uh, debate. The RNC has indicated then there will be monthly debates between then and you know February 5th, which is the first uh, Republican you know primary. It's a caucus, as, as you know, but but for all intents and purposes, it's the mm -hmm. first time folks are voting for the Republican uh, uh, you know nomination. And um, now I think effectively the really the last possible date that a candidate can get into the race is November. Uh, that is because that is when all of these sort of state filing deadlines begin, and presumably anybody who has a chance at the nomination will be on all 50 state uh, ballots. And so November effectively is kind of the last possible. So I mean, it is it's it's you know getting closer to that, but obviously it's still a lot of a lot of time for all of this to to shake out. But I think we we would presume that by that first debate, you probably will have a pretty good sense of what the field is going to look like. Uh, going into the going into the primary battle. I was talking earlier, Libby, about what the field looked like this time two cycles ago. So 2015 going into 16, Scott Walker 
was leading all of the national polls. Uh, Dr. Ben Carson was somewhere in the middle. Donald Trump was last with like 4%. He was being laughed at for being in the single digits. People couldn't even believe he was running. How much does that inform uh, the race in this case? You already made one comparison, but these things can change a lot from what we seem to think is kind of already baked ahead of the first debate. Yeah, again, and this is, and again, this is also a message that we're trying to it is in part on our clients that it is still very early days, particularly when you're looking at the polling. As you said, the the polling you know, back in sort of the 2016 cycle, at this point in 2015, Scott Walker and then Jeb Bush was right behind him, I believe. Uh, in 2008, it was Rudy Giuliani was leading with a big lead with uh, you know over over McCain and. Uh, in 2012, it was you know Rand Paul uh, who was looking like right. uh, he was doing quite well. So I, I would say that the polling is really not predictive at this point in the cycle. Uh, of course, it's national polling, not even state polling, so that makes it I think even less predictive and less relevant. Um, you know, I think that the the electorate will likely start focusing on this after those debates. So you know, come fall when school's back in session. I think folks are going to start to focus on that. And that's when we've seen that the polling becomes a little bit more predictive. But honestly, until folks start voting uh, is when I think that's when people should start focusing on the polls, because before then, it's just it's just pretty it's just pretty noisy, particularly at the at the national level. But when we're talking about kind of these primary politics and all these different Republicans competing against each other, what role does the other the candidate on the Democratic ticket current president Joe Biden play in this? Because you did see in Pence's uh, rollout video, he did try and throw some jabs at at the seated president. Yeah, no, that's a, I mean, I think that there that that's going to be a strategy. Yeah, I think a lot of folks are, you know, fairly or unfairly calling into question President Biden's age um, and especially his age when he would take office again in a second term. Uh, he would be 80, 82. And a lot of folks are trying to focus on, you know, his running mate, uh, Kamala Harris, who, you know, as you all know, doesn't usually the VP doesn't usually get a lot of attention as, mm-hmm. you know, folks folks at the top of the ticket are really the, the motivator. But I think that the Republicans are going to try to make um, Kamala Harris much more of a centerpiece in terms of, you know, their, you know, their narrative here. Um, I think that for President Biden, he's going to just try to emphasize all of the things he's doing in Washington. You know, the debt ceiling deal may not have been great for House Democrats, but pretty good for him politically, I would argue. Um, he can point to it as Maybe being a little bit more fiscally responsible as working across the aisle, of course, avoiding defaults um, and and what have you. So I think you're going to hear a lot of that kind of more positive messaging around that he is a president who can work across the aisle, who can get things done. And then I also would say that you're going to hear more of these social kind of cultural issues that you've heard about in the, in the midterms, particularly in terms of abortion rights. I think that's going to be a big, mm-hmm. a big focus for Democrats in particular for the president. We're spending time with Libby Cantrell from PIMCO, whose note to clients makes it clear, go off and have a summer for the foreseeable future. She writes the August debate, and that's why August 23. That's why we're circling that on our calendars for Wisconsin. Uh, That'll be the most tangible inflection point this summer, Libby says. But even then, voters will not start focusing on all of this until much later on this year. Which is why, again, Libby, nobody seems to think Donald Trump's going to show up for that first debate. So if he's not there... Does it yeah. matter? Yeah, and honest, and, and and as you know, as, as you guys know, I mean, just the the, the qualifying criteria for that debate looks like it's going to be more stringent than you know previous debates. There's a 
a polling threshold that candidates have to meet. Then there's also a fundraising threshold, and that's actually, I think, much more arguably onerous. Um, you have 40,000 uh, individual uh, donations. Um, and then there's a, you know, there's some sort of threshold from a, from a state perspective as well. So it, I think that is actually going to be a big obstacle for a lot of folks to even qualify. So even while we, there are lots of names being thrown around and folks getting into the race, whether they can actually even make it to the debate stage, I think remains an open question. And if you yeah, think right. about the RNC's motivation, they want to narrow this race as quickly as possible. So they don't really want to see a repeat of the 2016 cycle in many ways where, you know, there were 17 folks on you know, two stages and, and, and what have you. Remember as, the kids really table? <laughs> yeah. Doing that again. And I had to, like you guys, I had to cover every one of those oh. <laughs> and to and note our clients. So, Yes, I do. I remember it in painstaking detail in, in many ways. Um, but, you know, I think to your question, though, Joe, it's, it's a, it, it, I, you know, who knows whether President Trump is going to uh, is going to appear. And in many ways, uh, it sort of behooves him not to because, you know, he doesn't I'm not not sure how much upside he has in terms of appearing. Um, but then there, there, there's arguably some downside. But he also kind of validates a lot of these other candidates because uh, I'm not sure how many people you know, the those last dog days of summer will folks actually tune in if President Trump is not yeah, on the right. debate stage. So again, open question. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of see how it unfolds. Well, Libby, speaking of seeing how things unfold, I do, before we let you go, we only have a few minutes left, want to touch on what is still happening here in Washington, because yes, the big kidney stone maybe has passed, <laughs> but that's not to say that Speaker McCarthy isn't still dealing with yeah, aches and boy. pains elsewhere. We're still stuck in this stalemate in the House of Representatives, members of the Freedom Caucus holding things up because they're angry about how McCarthy handled uh, the debt ceiling deal. How do you think this ends? Is Speaker McCarthy now a leader in name only? I don't, you know, I don't, I, I you know, I'm a, I would argue no. I think uh, that he very much still enjoys the support of the vast majority of his, of his caucus. You know, the the sort of the the minority the vo- is very vocal uh, and is allowed is able to get headlines and of course what we saw just you know yesterday they can also derail a vote uh, so you know I think they will try to use kind of every negotiating sort of tactic that they or, or leverage that they they may they may have but I, I don't think he's a, a speaker in name only I think actually the again the majority of his caucus uh, is very much supportive of him thinks that he was able to kind of pull a rabbit out of the hat. So to speak, uh, in terms of you know getting all of this done and getting some Republican you know concessions from from the president around the debt ceiling. So no, I think it's um, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty noisy, but it's going to be noisy to your point. And I think mm. that it's even though it's a minority, it's a minority that can be quite effective in terms of derailing legislation, especially partisan legislation, where you need every Republican vote, uh, and those Republicans can you know vote you know as a block uh, against against Speaker McCarthy. I think you're going to continue to see that because, as you said, <laughs> there there's some aftershocks from uh, from the debt ceiling, and, and not everyone obviously was very happy with it, and they're and they're going to kind of vote with their feet, so to speak. Yeah, we're not going to let them forget it for a while here, Libby. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining. Libby Cantrell, Managing Director, the Head of Public Policy at PIMCO, a regular voice on Bloomberg for a reason, Kaylee. She knows what she's talking about. And just to get back to where we began with this Glenn Youngkin idea, yeah. new poll out, as I read on Real Clear Politics, this one from Roanoke College. The Virginia Republican presidential primary, Trump 48, DeSantis 28. We go to single digits where Glenn Youngkin and Tim Scott are tied at one hmm. in Virginia. The Great Commonwealth. Anything could happen still. With Kaylee Lines, I'm Joe Matthew. In Washington, this is Bloomberg.
You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It was back in March. They had the big TikTok hearing on Capitol Hill. I'm Joe Matthew along with Kaylee Lyons. Remember Kaylee Shu Chu? Mm-hmm. The CEO of TikTok came to Washington. It was a big show way before he ever got into the hearing room. He was holed up there in a hotel room or something. He was making TikTok videos himself talking about the benefits of the platform. There are more than 150 million Americans on TikTok. That's almost half of the U.S. coming to TikTok to connect, to create, to share, to learn, or just to have some fun. This includes 5 million businesses that use TikTok to reach their customers. And the majority of these are small and medium businesses. And remember, he came packing with like a, a, a squad of influencers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the content creators, as I guess he would call them, who were dancing and singing around the Capitol that day. Descended upon Washington. <laughs> yes. No to idea where they platform. were. Lip syncing in the rotunda. Yeah. And that got to be a pretty chippy hearing. I mean, he got a lot of tough questions, including tough questions from Senator Marsha Blackburn, who's going to join us here. Yes. As he made the point that, hey, China, pay no attention to that. The bottom line is this. American data stored on American soil by an American company overseen by American personnel. Not so much, according to Senator Blackburn. She, along with Senator Richard Blumenthal, who we've actually heard from in this broadcast a couple times already on a few issues. Uh, They sent a letter together. This has been an issue for the two of them. Ranking member and chair of the Subcommittee on Consumer Protection, Product Safety, Data Security. Uh, on TikTok's allegedly misleading claims over how and where it stores its data. They've had this Texas project underway and it mm-hmm. doesn't project seem to be Texas. making a difference. That too. <laughs> it's like China, one, one China, yes, one Bloomberg. Let's bring in the senator now from Tennessee's. Uh, that's funny. Uh, from Tennessee, of course, the, the Senator, Marsha Blackburn. It's great to have you back, Senator. Thanks for being with us here. And I want to ask you about this letter that you wrote. Is it? Are you trying to change behavior or, or expose what it is that you see them doing? Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we know that TikTok is a part of the surveillance and the soft propaganda that the Chinese Communist Party seeks to roll out every single day. This is all part of their push for global dominance. What we are very concerned about is what happens to the data that is coming from American users. And we had brought this up a couple of different times with individuals from TikTok to say, where are you keeping this? What are you doing with this? Does the Chinese Communist Party have access to this? And the answer is always, as you have just played the clip, no, 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 it never leaves U.S. shores. So then we find out that it also is stored in Singapore. It is also making its way to Beijing and being stored there. So, of course, that's of concern to us because what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do is get more people on TikTok, using TikTok, and then what they do with your data once they're in your phone, what they will do is track you 
follow you and build what I call is a virtual you so that they can predict what you're going to be doing next. They can follow you from site to site. They can sell your data and monetize that data, and you're marketed to by companies. So, of course, we would love to change some behavior, but also what we're trying to do is protect the privacy of American citizens. Well, and so on that point, on what you can do, what Congress can do, when are we actually going to see movement on any of the legislation that has put forward? It feels like this is a conversation that had a lot of momentum. We had him testify. And then where did it go? And that's part of our frustration. Senator Blumenthal and I have the Kids Online Safety Act. Uh, We have led the subcommittee. We've tried to push online consumer privacy, uh, which has got to be done before we get into the AI conversation. We've tried to push forward kids' online safety. Uh, We're ready for that to move forward. And the House needs to respond to this also Mm -hmm. because they are uh, they're not moving forward as quickly as the Senate is. Senator Blackburn, there have been reports that TikTok is spending an inordinate amount of money on lobbyists, that following your hearing, the one that we just heard sound from Shu Chu speaking to you in here, that that they decided to blanket Washington with cash to try to keep this from actually reaching the floors of the Senate and the House. Is that true? Uh, Our understanding is that they have added to their lobbying shop Um, When we had had their primary public policy rep before us, uh, their top rep, we asked who was paying them, where their paychecks were coming from. And, of course, he said from TikTok, not ByteDance, the parent company. And then we found out, no, that it was actually coming from ByteDance. That's of concern to us. And uh, it just seems that TikTok tells us something and then we find out later that that is inaccurate. So this is one of the reasons that we have the letter in to them. We want to figure out, you know, where they're telling the truth and where they're not. That's an important distinction, Kaylee, for the the benefit of our listeners. ByteDance would be the parent company. That is China talking, if that's the case, doing the hiring. Beijing company. That's right. Well, and it raises the question, Senator, of broadly the role of China, because it does come down here to concerns that this data is shared with the Chinese Communist Party. At the same time we're having this conversation, we have the CEO of City, Jane Frazier, making a trip to Beijing. Jamie Dimon and Elon Musk were there last week. We now know that uh, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is planning a trip to Beijing in the coming weeks. It seems that both uh, diplomats and corporate executives are uh, making this push to really, you know, firm up relations with China or make them better at the very least. What is your response to all of that? What we need to realize is that companies that are doing business in China, China is going to have a part of your business. And the governance uh, for these companies, how they're going to proceed with that, what they're going to share with China causes us concerns. Likewise, companies that are manufacturing in China 
the way they have violated intellectual property protections, the way they've used the PTAB process to try to negate copyrights, trademarks, and patents. Uh, This is something that is of concern to us because we want to keep innovation here. We want to keep our innovators here in this country, and we want likewise to see that manufacturing return to to U.S. Uh, air companies and uh, manufacturing domestically mm-hmm. or either nearshoring or friendshoring some of this manufacturing. I know you need to go here, Senator, and, and we only have a moment left. Do you just have any sense uh, for those who are listening when you might see a vote? Are you hearing from the leadership on this that there might be a vote on TikTok legislation? We are not hearing from the leadership on this. Uh, we would like for them to do something this summer. It's been so interesting that the parents, we've got over 200 groups and organizations, bipartisan, by the way, that support our Kids Online Safety Act. A lot of these groups are saying, let's get this signed, sealed, delivered on the books before the kids go back to school. Because social media is such a distraction to kids during the school day, it is where a lot of cyberbullying and bullying starts and is carried out. And uh, it kids get are at the point they pay more attention to the screen than they do to the teacher who is lecturing, and therefore their grades suffer. They have more. Um, mental health issues. So they want to see this legislation moving forward sooner rather than later. Well, listen, come back and talk to us when we get to that point. We'd like to continue the conversation, which you were uh, kind to start with us many months ago on this. Senator Marshall Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee. Many thanks for the time here. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.